how many of you have read Douglas Adams's book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Uh, okay, a couple, yes. Uh, I think Adams wrote a series of books, I think five books in total, that he described as a trilogy in five volumes. It's a humorous science fiction book that you need a particular uh, read wacky sense of humor to enjoy. One of the many things that Adams describes in the book is the restaurant at the end of the universe, by which he doesn't mean a restaurant that is located physically at the end of the universe, at the outer reaches, but rather a restaurant in which you can sit and eat a meal and through the great glass windows observe the ending of the universe. And uh, due to uh, some quantum physics that I don't really understand, some improbability factors, and Adam's own wild imagination, the end of the universe can be viewed from this restaurant on any evening of any given week of the year. The restaurant allows you to watch the end of the universe again and again and again. Now, if it's not too irreverent, I think that the book of Revelation is a little bit like the restaurant at the end of the universe. The book describes the entire period between Christ's first coming to earth at Christmas and his final return at the end of time, what the New Testament describes as the last days. That's what the last days means, that entire period. And the description of the last days, to my mind, in the book of Revelation, is not linear and sequential. Rather, the book describes this period a number of different times and from a number of different angles. In some way, then, the book is a little bit like a movie in that you have flashbacks and flash-forwards. Sometimes the camera zooms out so that you get the big picture. Uh, for example, the whole of Christian history described in terms of a woman clothed with the sun and her child and a great big red dragon. At other times, the camera zooms in so that you have a closer look at some aspect of the history. Uh, for example, a look at the new heavens and the new earth. It's a little bit like when you watch a rugby match or a cricket match on television and you get the action replays of the try or the catch from different angles. It's the same try, but the different angles allow you to see other details that you wouldn't have seen if you'd only had the one view. So last week in our look through Revelation, we ended with chapter 14 which was a description of the very end, the day of judgment described in terms of a grain harvest and a grape harvest. And now in chapters 15 and 16, we get another action replay. John takes us back again to view the entire period of the last days in terms of seven bowls of God's wrath that are poured out on the earth. It does seem as if the camera is zooming in, particularly on the end of the last days, the last days of the last days, if you like, because towards the end of the passage, we will read how God says, it is done. And we read about a great earthquake, which elsewhere in the book symbolizes the end of the earth. But let's have a look. Revelation chapters 15 and 16. We did look at verses 2 to 4 of the passage in an earlier sermon, but I'll read them again as part of the whole chapter. John writes, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, 
seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the testimony, was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of the pain and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they'd done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons, performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him, so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. 
Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague was so terrible. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you who revealed these things to John might reveal them afresh to us this morning. This is part of your holy word and it's addressed to us. So won't you open up our ears and our eyes and our hearts to see what you might be saying to us through these verses and then help us to respond. For we ask it in your name. Amen. I have some good friends who love games. Uh, They are addicted to board games. And whenever we go to visit them, they'll always haul out their latest game that they've discovered and and want to play it with us. Um, They often have games from overseas that I've never heard of before. Uh, You know, things like Monopoly Deal, Uno, Cahoots, and a variety of other ones as well. And Eric is always very good. He takes out the rules and carefully explains the game before we begin. I'm sure you've taken out the rules of the game at some point, uh, probably midway through the game, while there's an argument about what's going on. But if you read the rules of the game, you will often read the following words. The game ends when? The game ends when a player collects three full property sets of different colors, or whatever. And knowing how the game ends is vitally important because it affects how you play the game. Well, in these two chapters, the Lord Jesus reveals to us how all of human history is going to end. And a clear understanding of how history ends is extremely important because it profoundly affects how we live our lives in the here and now. Now, there is a great deal that we could look at in these verses. Uh, We've looked at some aspects of these verses in previous sermons, and we'll look at some other aspects in future sermons too. Uh, There's too much detail, and quite frankly, there are some things that are difficult to interpret or understand too. So instead of going through these verses again in detail, I'd like to highlight just four truths I believe John wants us to understand from this vision. Four big picture items before looking more briefly at three practical applications to our own hearts and lives. So firstly, four truths. In this passage, John wants his readers and us to understand something about sin and evil, something about sovereignty, about wrath, and about judgment. Firstly, John is wanting us to understand something about sin and evil. You may recall that this is, in fact, the third time that John describes the last days in terms of a cycle of seven. Back in chapter six, John described seven seals that are opened and that bring disasters on the earth. These are described from the perspective of the suffering church. 
John tells us that in the time leading up to Christ's return, it will be marked by sin and evil, war and famine and disease, as well as the persecution of God's people. Then in chapters 8 and 9, John describes the angelic sounding of seven trumpets that bring about similar distress on the earth. These are described now from the perspective of the earth. And John tells us that the disasters that come on the earth are used by God as trumpet blasts, alarms, warnings, alerts to get people's attention, to turn them from sin, and to turn them to the living God. And now John describes that same time period in terms of seven golden bowls filled with God's wrath that come upon the earth. And the perspective now is from heaven and of God's judgment on an unrepentant world. You'll notice that the contents of these bowls are very similar to the plagues that God sent on Egypt when he brought his people out of that land and brought his judgment on the gods of Egypt and on an unrepentant Pharaoh. Now notice a couple of things about the outpouring of these golden bowls. Uh, the events that are unleashed are similar to the ones that we saw in the seven seals and the seven trumpets. Uh, there are what we might call natural disasters, uh, the sea and the rivers and the water turning to blood, the sun scorching the earth. In fact, we can see some of these things in our world right now, can't we? Uh, the bleaching of the coral reefs, up to 75% of them uh, under threat. Uh, the pollution of drinking water, uh, record temperatures recorded all over the world the melting of the polar ice caps and uh, the Arctic ice. The outpouring of these bowls also leads to war, uh, as we saw in the seals and the trumpets. Uh, the bowl of the sixth angel dries up the Euphrates River, which was a natural defensive barrier, and now the kings of the east are able to cross that river and gather together for battle, which they do in a place called Armageddon. Uh, perhaps you've heard of it. <laughs> Now, we'll come back to this famous battle in chapter 19, but let me make a couple of comments. Uh, firstly, for all its fame or infamy, uh, we don't know where Armageddon is. There doesn't seem to be a place called Armageddon in the Middle East. Uh, there is a plain called Megiddo in Scripture where some fine battles took place, but we can't really identify an actual location. We'll see in chapter 19 that the kings of the earth don't gather together to fight against one another, but rather to fight against Christ, the white rider, and the armies of heaven. So in fact, this battle may not be an actual war, but rather one final push against God and his people, one final outpouring of wrath and persecution against the people of God. Notice again the reference to political power in terms of the armies and also the power of false religion. We looked at this in a previous sermon, but we have these evil spirits pictured as frogs that come from the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, it comes from their mouths, their speech, deceiving people, even to the degree of performing miracles to entice them to fight against God and his people. And interestingly, we read that the Battle of Armageddon is never fought. 
In verse 16, the kings gather together, but in verse 17, a voice comes from heaven saying, it is done. And there is this great earthquake which represents the end. We'll see the same pattern in chapter 19. The armies gather together to fight against the white rider and his army, but they're defeated simply by Christ appearing on the battlefield. Well, in the words of Forrest Gump, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> There's enough to get us thinking already. But, but the bowls describe things that we've already seen that come on the earth, but with one very important difference. You may remember that the opening of the seven seals affected a quarter of the earth. The, the sounding of the seven trumpets affected one third of the earth. And now the pouring out of these bowls affect the entire earth. In other words, John is wanting us to understand that the entire period between Christ's first coming and his second coming are going to be characterized by war and famine and persecution and that it is going to increase and increase towards the end. Secondly, John wants us to understand something about sovereignty that while there will be horrific times that come on the earth, God is sovereignly in control. Did you notice that the seven angels take no action until they are commanded by God to do so? Chapter 16 and verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. And then they do. In other words, it is God, not people, who is in control over these events. Again, in verse 9, we read how people cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues. Now, that would have been very important for John's first readers. Remember that they are about to face a time of terrible persecution where they will lose mothers and fathers and children to the Roman government, where they will face torture and death. And before this even takes place, John writes them to tell them that this is going to happen. God tells them that this is going to happen, which would really encourage them when these events did start to happen. But also, now more specifically, John writes to say that God is in control, even of the end of the world, most especially of the end of the world. And folk, no matter what you may be facing today, God is in control. We can't get into all the details about sin and evil and judgment and human responsibility. You've heard me preach on that before. And some situations don't need a sermon, they need a conversation, which I'm happy to do with you as well. But I do want to assure you that if God is in control of the very end of the world, when the world seems to have gone mad, then he is in control of whatever situation you might be facing today. Thirdly, in this passage, John wants us to understand something about God's wrath. Now, we looked at this last time, and we will look at it again. It's not a particularly easy subject, but it's important to recognize that our God, whose very definition is love, God is love, is also a God of wrath. Chapter 15 and verse 1, these are the last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. 
How can God be a God of love and a God of wrath? Well, perhaps Father's Day gives us a bit of insight into this. As a parent, I know that my love for my daughters produces great wrath against anything that would harm them. There's a lady called Rebecca Pippert who's written a book, Hope Has Its Reasons, and she writes this. Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Love detests what destroys the beloved. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. Nearly a century ago, the theologian E.H. Clifford wrote that the more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. She continues, anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. If I, a flawed, narcissistic, sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who made them. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. And because God is a God of wrath, John wants us to understand thirdly something about God's judgment. Because God has a personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, a settled refusal to compromise with it, a resolve instead to condemn it, we see in this passage that he will one day pour out his judgment on the earth. But please notice that whatever else we might feel about this concept of God's judgment, this passage points out that ultimately God's justice is 100% absolutely, completely, perfectly just and fair. Chapter 16 and verse 5, you are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One because you have so judged. Verse 7, Yes, Lord Almighty, true and just are your judgments. In fact, we are told that God's justice is so perfect that when his people look at his justice, it results in praise. Chapter 15, verse 3, Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? I think it's important to notice, too, that God's judgment is only poured out on those who refuse to repent and who instead shake their fist in the face of God and curse and blaspheme him. And again, God's response is not anger or meanness or vindictiveness or petty rage, In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis says this, In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of judgment and wrath and hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? 
but he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I am afraid that is what he does. Lewis's reference to Calvary, the cross of Jesus, is so important. Did you notice how John describes the end of the world in chapter 16 and verse 17? The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. I don't think that John could have written those words down without vividly recalling some words that he'd written several years earlier in his gospel. In his description of Jesus' death on the cross, John writes these words in John 20. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What is finished? Everything that was necessary to bring sinful people into a relationship with the Holy God was completely finished on the cross. Everything that needed to be done about sin was completely and perfectly finished on the cross. At the cross, God's wrath at sin and his deep love for us meet together to save sinners. And so we have a choice. We can either hear and receive Jesus's it is finished from the cross Or we can reject God and push him out of our lives and so at the end of time hear his words, it is done. As Pastor Daryl Johnson puts it, there is a way out of the wrath to come. It is to throw ourselves on the cross where wrath was mercifully expended by God on himself in the person of Jesus. Well, having looked at something of the message of these verses, things that John wants us to know and understand, let me highlight three applications of this passage to our own hearts and lives. I'll describe them in terms of three R's. (laughs) Firstly, I believe that we can rest. We can rest. Not in terms of relaxation, but in terms of quietness and trust. In other words, we don't have to be alarmed. God has told us in advance that such things will happen. Jesus, while he was on earth, told us that before his return, there would be wars and rumors of wars and famine and earthquake and persecution. But he also told us that if we know and love him, we will be ultimately safe. And so we can say with the psalmist, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Linked to this idea of rest, I'd like secondly to make an application in terms of revenge. Not in terms of taking revenge, but in terms of not taking revenge. It's a bit of an oblique application, but I think it's there in the text. Some people believe that all of this talk of judgment and wrath and hell makes Christians unpleasant and vengeful and angry people. And unfortunately, for some it does. But actually, a proper understanding of God's righteous judgment is the only thing that can prevent retaliation and revenge and replace that instead with forgiveness. 
So Miroslav Volf is a Croatian theologian who's a professor of theology at Yale University. And he saw firsthand the horrible tit-for-tat cycle of revenge that played out in the former Yugoslavia. Uh, the Turks got revenge on the Croats in 1389 at the Battle of Kosovo. The Croats got revenge on the Turks in the 1940s. Then the Serbs said, it's our turn in the 1990s. Wolf wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace, in which he says this, the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. The practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. Imagine speaking to people, as I have, whose cities and villages have first been plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. If you say to them, we should not retaliate, since God is perfect, non-coercive love, you will find that that does not work. <laughs> Why should they not take revenge? It's only an understanding that one day God will perfectly and righteously judge the earth and take revenge where necessary that can lead people to nonviolence and non-retaliation and forgiveness. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12 and he says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends. Why? Because God is loving and kind and nice and doesn't punish anyone? No. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And forgiveness then is an act of trust, an act of trust that one day God will sort it out and that actually God knows far more about the situation than I do and God knows about this person and their background and all of the influences that have gone into making them act towards me in this way and I simply place them in his hands and I rest and I trust in him. And so who is it this morning that you're tempted to retaliate on or take revenge on? Let's rest this morning knowing that God is the perfect judge and we can leave the situation in his hands. And then thirdly and finally, these verses challenge us to be ready. It's interesting that in the middle of these bowls being poured out, almost out of the blue, we hear the voice of Jesus saying, Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. I think the temptation for us in reading this chapter is to try and figure out exactly whereabouts we are on the timeline. Uh, we can see our world being affected. We can see things like the seas being polluted. We can see things like wars taking place. And so we think to ourselves, how long exactly have we got left? But even among these signs of Jesus' return, the message is for us not to be forecasters, but to be ready at any time. Which again was exactly the same message that Jesus gave to us while he was on earth. Mark chapter 13. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. 
What I say to you, I say to everyone. Watch. There's so much more to look at in these chapters. But now that we've seen how the game ends, how the world ends, how the universe gets wrapped up, let's make sure that we live our lives with the end clearly in mind. That we don't live as if this world is simply going to go on forever. That we set our minds on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That we keep praying, your kingdom come. And that each day we remind ourselves, perhaps today. Let's pray together.